Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Life Examined. As part of KCRW's extended climate coverage, I'll be examining how the climate crisis is reshaping the way we live our lives. New research from Ohio professor Susan Clayton shows that really hot weather has profound effects over our physical and mental well-being. There's a level of heat that we are just not able to adapt to, that we are are physiologically incapable of, um, of tolerating. We'll hear how extended periods of heat increase anxiety, suicides, and psychiatric hospitalizations. Then, how are extreme weather patterns impacting where we choose to live? Massive fires and flooding destroy homes and livelihoods each year. Will incentives to rebuild start to change? How individual people respond to climate change is becoming less of a a political question, less of a question of sort of faith in science and more of a pocketbook issue. The climate emergency and our rapidly shifting emotional and physical landscape. All ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. The recent fires have had a devastating impact on the lives of Californians up and down the state. Thick, unhealthy, smoke-filled air has turned cities into hellscapes, plumes of which have spread across the country. The impacts from extreme weather go far beyond the destruction of our landscape. Being around nature and around a healthy, natural environment is good for us, and the reverse is also the case. We've known for some time that hot weather and overheating has a direct physiological impact on how we function. But could the climate crisis also be the cause of a mental health crisis, with children, the poor, and minorities disproportionately impacted? To talk more about how extreme weather events are impacting our mental and physical health, I'm joined by Susan Clayton, professor of psychology and chair of environmental studies at the College of Worcester in Ohio. Susan Clayton, welcome. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. When did you first begin to see a connection or begin to ask the questions about this connection between mental health and climate change? Where did that begin for you? Well, probably it was about uh, 10 years ago, actually, the American Psychological Association put together a task force to look at um, the role of psychology in addressing global climate change. And so I'm a social psychologist, and I mostly focus on people's um, social behavior and social perceptions and attitudes and so on. But there were, were several people who were more clinically oriented working on the task force, and they started to talk about um, the mental health aspects. And I just became intrigued. And the more I looked into it, the more I recognized that you know there clearly uh, were reasons to be concerned about the mental health impact of climate change. What were some of the things that caught your attention when you looked at kind of some of the findings on the clinical level? Yeah, well, early on, what we knew pretty well, and we still know pretty well, is that uh, extreme weather events have a detrimental effect on mental health. Um, And, you know, that's not surprising. It doesn't have to be associated with climate change. If you go through a hurricane or a wildfire, you know, there are um, clear increases in rates of things like post-traumatic stress disorder, Um, anxiety disorder, you see sometimes increased rates of suicide. And another interesting part of this is that a lot of those symptoms can also be related to just hotter weather. Isn't that correct? Yes. And so again, when um, I didn't recognize this probably when I first started to look at the literature, but a couple of things have become more apparent since then. One is that some of the more subtle effects of climate change are also likely to have an impact on mental health. And heat, as you said, is is probably the primary one there. We have lots of evidence for decades about harmful impacts of heat, and it doesn't have to be associated with climate change, but of course climate change is leading to increases in temperature and uh, more frequent heat waves. So um, that evidence um, associated with uh, both increased mental health problems and also just decrements to everyday mood and social behavior. Yeah, can you jump in a little bit to more? A little bit more into what heat does to us psychologically? Well, there we don't exactly know why the relationship exists. It's probably uh, multiple levels. One of the things is, is that we find heat to be stressful. So whenever you're, you're dealing with a stressor, it tends to you know, take some mental resources to deal with that, which means you have fewer mental resources left for other things. And one of those other things can be trying to understand other people. So we feel essentially less empathetic and less um, 
on average, of course, less positively inclined towards other people um, and aggression rates tend to go up and, uh, and helpfulness tends to go down under hot circumstances. Um, there's also the idea, and there's good evidence for this, that um, heat makes it more difficult for you to sleep. Anyone who has had a sleepless night knows that it can put you in a bad mood. And right. so you're in a bad mood, you're not functioning very well, you get cranky. Um, so it's it sounds kind of almost silly when you look at it at that level, but it can, in fact, uh, lead to these more substantial negative impacts. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, I think anybody listening can attest to a certain irritability that can come when you're that, you know, when you're that hot. And it, I was amazed to, to kind of do some reading on this to find that actually suicide rates go up as well when there's just extreme heat. Yes. And so we talk about this sometimes as an example of aggression directed at yourself rather than at someone else. But yeah, suicide rates tend to go up and psychiatric hospitalizations. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's there's physiological vulnerability to heat as well. So um, that's why you have people, you know, in some cases dying uh, during heat waves or, um, you know, certainly suffering physical impacts. And it's possible that over the long term, uh, there could be physiological impacts on the nervous system. We don't yet really have evidence for that kind of thing yet. Right. I mean, so when you kind of think about this and you put it in the context of climate change, I mean, uh, could we suggest that, you know, the world would become increasingly hostile as it heats up, that we could see higher levels of, of you know, psychiatric disorders or, I don't know, suicides? What do you think? I think that's a real risk. And in fact, you know, I'm certainly not alone. And um, under our previous administration, the Defense Department issued a report talking about climate change as a security risk. And one of the reasons for that is that I, is the idea that climate change uh, will tend to increase levels of conflict. Now, there's multiple reasons for that. One is competition over land and other environmental resources, but also that um, that data that show that people are essentially more aggressive and more conflictual as temperatures increase. Yeah. What about communities of color? I mean, do they have a could this have a greater impact on on their communities? Yes, for several reasons. I mean, one is um, is associated with financial resources. So um, there are many ways in which financial resources can be used to buffer your health, and one is whether you can afford air conditioning. Um, but also, we have because of the the history of racism in this country and many other countries, uh, you often find the communities of color the physical infrastructure of the communities they live in is less good. So they might be. Um, the buildings might be less well insulated or they might have less good, reliable access to um, clean water um, or they might be more subject to disruptions in, you know, supply of water associated with like, you know, things, mm -hmm. bridges buckle, things break when yeah. it gets too hot. So yeah. those kinds of physical infrastructure things. And what about children? Do they kind of, are they more susceptible to the impacts of climate change? Yes. I feel like every question you ask, I'm probably going to say yes to. Um, <laughs> yes. Children are more vulnerable and partly because they, uh, you know, their bodies are still developing, their nervous systems and uh, at some level are still developing. And of course, uh, this depends what age they are, but things that are developing can be impaired and impacted in a more permanent way um, than when that thing has completed its development. And one of the things that children have not fully developed is their ability to regulate their own temperature. Mm -hmm. So as adults, we have you know, complicated physiological systems that help us to maintain a more or less constant body temperature. And children are not as good as that. And you know, parents who have to call their children to come inside you know, when it's 30 degrees outside, they know that the children are sort of not as aware of those temperatures and not responding to those temperature differences. Yeah, of course. You know, I, as we have this conversation, I also just think about really hot places in the world, sub-Saharan African uh, countries or equatorial countries. I mean, places that have learned to adapt to really hot climates. And I don't necessarily think of them as increasingly violent. So is there a kind of any, I don't know, hiccup in the literature when we also include these communities into it? Well, I think the question of adaptation, uh, I, there's sort of two things there. One is the adaptation issue. And um, people do say, maybe we'll, maybe we'll learn to adapt uh, to higher temperatures. Um, some of the research, for example, that looks at levels, uh, impacts of heat on suicide has not found evidence for adaptation. And it is true that 
you know, there's a level of heat that we are just not able to adapt to, that we are, are physiologically incapable of, um, of tolerating. Right. Um, at a lower level, I can imagine there, there might be some room for adaptation. Um, and part of that adaptation is, you know, learning how, or learning what kind of clothes to wear, learning not to go out in the middle of the day, um, maybe. So there can be kind of behavioral adaptations uh, that people might increasingly learn. I think in here in the U.S., we tend to just think, hey, I should, I should be able to do whatever I want at whatever time I want. So right. we're not right. used to adjusting to the weather as much. You know, we've been talking a lot about heat and the impacts on mental health, but there's also something else going on. I think any of our Californians listening are, will also think about maybe the health impacts of seeing a fire raging outside of your house or the devastation of a park nearby or of trees you used to visit on the weekends when you would walk. And I think if, if I have this right, this is something you've thought about a lot, which is what happens when we lose these places in nature that are very dear to us. Absolutely. And so we've been talking first about the very, you know, clear impacts of climate change from extreme weather events, and then the more subtle effects from things like rising temperatures. And this, I would say, is the, is the most subtle and abstract of all. And yet there's increasing, increasing evidence that it's happening. These uh, sort of um, negative emotions and anxiety associated just with our, our awareness that the climate of ch is changing mm. and our, our concern over what we're losing and our fear about what we might lose in the future. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what happens to us? Is there any more you can kind of add to that? I think it's really interesting. Well, again, it is something that uh, people are sort of only beginning to, to think about. I don't think that we're going to get to a place where we're all sadder than we are now. You know, I don't think that's going to be a result. I do think it's quite possible that you know, in the near future, we're going to be more stressed than we are now. But what's happening now is our recognition that, we, um, that things that we thought we could take for granted, we can't take for granted. And that's, that's quite a thing to have to wrap your head around. And so that sort of disorientation. And I think a, a lot of us um, are feeling a profound sense of anxiety about what the future might hold. And if you see evidence for this right in front of you, if you see you know, your own house or your neighbor's house or a nearby community um, threatened by fire or, or burned down, that really brings it home. And I think many, if not most of us have sort of you know, for a few decades, thought of climate change in this more sort of abstract, oh, yeah, that will that will affect somebody somewhere at someday, but not me and not now. And now it's sort of, oh, it is beginning to affect me and people I know. This question of kind of the, the sadness of the, the larger issue at hand, knowing that the world is changing and perhaps seeing parts of it. I, I think of, for example, this trip I took up to Glacier National Park. And there were these kind of people that were going to kind of get, get the last glimpses of some of the glaciers up there, which will probably no longer exist. It was almost this kind of climate change tourism that was that was coming up, which is extremely strange. But I think that built into that for me is a real feeling of kind of depression, that there are things that are just not going to come back again, I guess. I think that's probably true. And, and on the one hand, I do take a certain comfort in the fact that um, we as a society, or at least many of us, do value the idea that there are these, these wild places, you know, glaciers or uh, remote untouched landscapes. And so we grieve the idea that they won't exist anymore. I wonder if you have any thoughts, you know, as well, just on, on the importance of, of humans being in nature, the love of nature, the connection, the health benefits of it, and the changing nature of that with climate change. Is that something you've looked into? It's something I've thought about. It's hard to know exactly how to look into it. But um, yeah, we, it's easy for us or perhaps easier for us to think about what climate change, the impacts of what we might be faced uh, with because of climate change um, and maybe harder to think about what we might not be faced with or we, what we might have less access to. But um, when you talked about the glaciers, that would be an example, but even just healthy nature, um, the, the green environments. And uh, I think that's true in two ways. One is a lot of us have, have lost or will lose places that we, that we grew up near. Mm. They will be uh, less healthy. And so we won't have access to those. But then just in general, as the climate keeps changing, and, and I, 
I don't want to say anything that implies that you know we're we're destined for doom no matter what, but um, it it may be harder for us to have access to healthy green nature, and there is just you know an avalanche of data in the last ten or twenty years supporting the benefits of those green environments for um, everything from physical health to mental health to social behavior and mood. Mm-hmm. Well, one. One kind of abstract question I do have relating to all of this is, I, I know is is I've studied some clinical psychology, and one thing that people are often striving for is having control, the feeling of having control over their lives. And I think one of the th- major challenges of climate change is we feel like we don't have control. We, we, the world around us is kind of spiraling in a direction in which we have no say over, and sometimes it feels like our actions have zero impact on how would you reflect on that in terms of our psychology or ways that we can kind of think about that maybe in a different way? Yeah, well, I think um, people often use the word existential to describe that sort of threat that climate change is is, is confronting us with, the, um, that we, we've not only, you know, we're not only facing specific losses, but this idea that our knowledge has been um, delegitimized. So that's one way in which we lose control. And that's, you know, it's extremely disorienting. So I, and part of it, I think as a society, we maybe need to learn um, to accept less control because I, you know, of course, we haven't talked about the fact that climate change is, is a result of, you know, societal practices and policies. Um, so to address it, we need to change some of those practices. And um, certainly in the U.S., we have tended to act as if it's, both possible and desirable to completely control nature, and I think um, one of the thing, one of the reasons these wildfires have been so striking, even to people who are not affected, is that sense that oh my gosh, here are people living in wonderful, beautiful places, and they still can't protect themselves from these wildfires. Right. So that's just at the social level, but certainly at the personal level, I think that one for people who are really feeling uh, a great deal of uh, climate-related anxiety. Um, thinking about how to regain control is an important response. So just recognizing your own feelings of being out of control and then trying to think about how you might how you might increase your sense of control. And that might be through actions, I guess, or something? Absolutely. So I, I would definitely encourage people, if possible, to take action in some way. And it can be, you know, people have different preferences. Uh, could be taking action in terms of personal lifestyle changes or in terms of preparedness for um, wildfire, for example. So there are certainly things you can do in your own residence. Um, it could be political action. Um, it could be uh, action to support your community in some way. But we can also get a, a greater feeling of control through a sort of a, a cognitive control. The better we understand what's happening, the, the, the more we might feel we have a handle on what might happen uh, in the in the future. Mm. Well, I wonder when you think of your research, where where is all this going? What's kind of the next phase of linking psychology and climate change? I think that there's still a lot for us to understand about the ways in which people are being um, sort of mentally affected by not only impacts but also the awareness of climate change. Um, but I think another important question that we need to examine is, you know, relate to the last thing you said, which is what what might make some people just uh, confront this issue and retreat into denial um, or become paralyzed by fear, whereas other people become energized and motivated to take action because, of course, we really need people um, not to be in denial. We need people to be optimistic enough in order to do something about it. Susan Clayton is a professor of psychology and chair of environmental studies at the College of Worcester in Ohio. We really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us on KCRW. Thank you. Still to come, are we on the cusp of the next great migration in America because of climate change? And then explaining the climate crisis through the art of storytelling. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. Stay with us.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Susan Clayton about how extreme heat impacts our mental health, but how will it impact where we choose to live? Will people move northward and east, away from coastal flooding and hot temperatures? Is climate change driving a wave of global migration? And a little later this hour, is there a better way to talk about climate change that's less wonky and maybe more relatable? Are faith-based communities and young people more skillful climate change communicators? But first, have these recent fires and all the smoky air got you thinking about, well, moving out of the state? Abram Lustgarten is a senior environmental reporter at ProPublica. His latest article for the New York Times Magazine is titled, How Climate Migration Will Shape America. Abram Lustgarten, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. Well, it's interesting to kind of go back and look at some of the history here, because um, you're writing about what could be a current or a future migration, but there have been a couple very important ones in the past in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about the Great Migration, and maybe also the Dust Bowl migrants, and the kind of what we can learn from their stories? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the the largest migration in U.S. history is the Great Migration of uh, Blacks out of the South uh, after World War One. Um, so really the period between about 1916 to 1970, we saw 6 million people make their way from uh, southern and southeastern states uh, up north towards Boston and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and, uh, you know, Chicago and Detroit and um and even out to Los Angeles. And uh, it was a movement uh, that really transformed the culture and identity of the United States. So, you know, so much of what we identify with now as sort of the hallmarks of uh, urban life in the United States, uh, music, um, uh, sports, uh, so many famous people that, that we all are familiar with came out of that migration or were next generation from that migration. And just as a, you know, a teaching example of what, um, the movement and reorganization of large populations can do uh, culturally in terms of changing the shape of the country and the behavior of the country and the politics and and uh, even arts and entertainment. And just quickly, I mean, if you could touch on the Dust Bowl as well, just one more historical piece here, that, that's kind of an important thing to talk about. Right. So the Dust Bowl is fascinating to me because it was climate induced or yeah. at least a, a similar mix of, you know, of, of climate and, and poor policy uh, that drove about two and a half million people out of the high plains states um, in the Great Depression. You know, so so drought uh, and over farming of the land there uh, really led to the failure of, of crops in much the same way that my data suggests that we might see again in the future. Um, but, you know, short of, of jobs and, and lacking food and uh, really, you know, diving into deep poverty, uh, those several million people packed up um, in wagons and cars and on foot and, uh, you know, and made their way um, largely to California, but to other uh, cities around the Midwest and to Denver as well. Um, but settling, uh, you know, we um, famously here, you know, in the Central Valley um, yeah. uh, uh, around Monterey Bay area. And uh, and, and again, you know, uh, it was a, a disruptive uh, change when it first happened. And now, um, you know, decades later, we can see how it has, you know, shaped and, and redefined um, the culture of California and the culture of so many places they went. Well, let's think about your research now. I mean, you've you've come up with some incredible mapping and looked at a lot of numbers about what this could mean for people who want to leave where they are or are forced to leave areas like the South or those that just can no longer survive in parts of the country where they are now. What, what gave you the notion to look at this and think about what, what could be coming our way? Well, um, it, the project began with a global look at, at you know, how climate change will uh, force a reorganization of populations and, and began with, you know, the, the larger overarching idea of, of, you know, asking how people will begin to experience climate change as opposed to, you know, our, our focus is so often on the science of climate change, on the landscape and the conditions, um, but, but less so on, on how we're actually going to live in the midst of it. Um, so this global research about, you know, the intensity of that change on people in, you know, the tropical 
latitudes uh, around, you know, it's kind of the middle part of the, the equator of, of the world, um, you know, had me thinking a lot about the, the transformation of, uh, you know, of communities. And I live in California and found myself kind of, you know, facing some of these things here locally at the same time. And so, you know, it was an obvious extension to ask how, you know, how climate change might affect, uh, have a similar effect on American communities. Uh, what's our level of resilience? Where will we choose to continue to face these threats? Where will we choose to flee from them? And if we if we do, where will we likely end up? Right. So, you know, I think what I'm seeing right now is there's a lot of folks that just kind of still want to think this is this is not happening. Um, and therefore, all the money is getting poured into just kind of rebuilding communities that are constantly getting hammered by, you know, uh, weather, which appears to be more and more violent. Um, or dealing with new ways to divert water. Um, but do you think that people are actually now thinking of moving? Is that is that part of the psychology that that is happening right now, do you think? Yeah, increasingly, uh, I'm anecdotally hearing that many people are thinking about moving, but that doesn't mean that this is the wave of of that excess exodus. It's it's probably going to be a, you know a slow and subtle thing that that happens over many decades. But what it, what is changing now is that sort of cost benefit analysis. You know, we have uh, uh, an economic foundation to everything that we do in this country. And for a long time, those economics in various ways have uh, favored or disincentivized, uh, you know, action on climate in terms of where and how people will live. And what we're seeing now is the change of, of that whole, you know, paradigm. Uh, the costs are beginning to outweigh um, the subsidies or the support base or, you know, the, the economic logic of staying put. And so, you know, how you respond, how individual people respond to climate change is becoming less of a, a political uh, question, less of a question of sort of faith in science and more of a pocketbook issue. And mm. the more that happens, people will be really, you know, faced to uh, forced to make decisions that, um, you know, secure their own livelihoods and, and that of their family. And, you know, I, I believe that it's going to be a slow transition, but we're certainly starting to see it in the hardest hit um, uh, places now subject to, you know, wildfires or the intense flooding that Houston saw two years ago or the, you know, the, the kind of storms that we're seeing um, coming out of the Gulf and the Atlantic. Right. And I mean, I think I think you're right to think that perhaps that what's going to change the situation is our, our finances, which can di- just dictate so much of how we live. And you write a little bit about how we may or are seeing now some changes in federal policy, FEMA, things like that, where we are going to be uh, financially allowed to rebuild and where we are not, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so look at the National Flood Insurance Program is one great example. Uh, for years, it's, uh, you know, it's replaced the homes of people people in flooded areas. And, uh, and, you know, famously, it's got a system for uh, what it calls, you know, repetitive loss uh, locations. And there's many homes on average that have been rebuilt five times, even six times in the same location, Uh, you know, and, and that, you know, on its face just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, um, you know, that's a program that's been criticized for its faults for for many, many years. And just this year is starting to shift its emphasis so that it's going to start uh, requiring that, you know, that it, reimbursement funds out of the National Flood Insurance Program encourage uh, what it calls retreat from repetitively flooded areas. So instead of rebuilding and knowing that your house is likely to be flooded again, uh, you'll have some money to take and move elsewhere, but you'll only get that money if you do, in fact, move elsewhere. And that encourages, you know, the kind of shift as, as painful on many levels as it, uh, you know, is, um, that's a kind of shift that's going to need to increasingly happen in the face of, you know, of wildland, wildfire interfaces, uh, repetitive flood zones, uh, coastal exposure, and so forth. Well, let's look at some of the data you've compiled and some of the modeling and kind of just imagine what life could be like in the next 100 years or so. I think you use 2070 as a model for a lot of things. But um, but let, let's 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 think about this. I mean, where are people going to be moving to and where are they right now? Yeah, so right now, uh, what the data suggests is that people who live along the West Coast will face increasing uh, fire risk, that, that the experience we have over the last couple of years is going to get consistently um, more intense um, and more dramatic. Uh, people along the entire southern half of the country will face increasing heat, increasing humidity, and increasing uh, violence from hurricanes, um, like we're seeing in this record season right now, um, not to mention sea level rise in those coastal communities as well. 
Um, the data also suggests that from you know southern Texas right up through the Midwest uh, that there's going to be a dramatic loss in crop yields, the ability uh, of the land to support the kind of large scale agriculture that um, you know that so much of uh, you know the American farm industry has depended on for so long, uh, and at the same time that it's going to get increasingly uh, dangerously hot and humid, uh, reaching as far north as Wisconsin. So. If you look at all those threats together, there's there's kind of a sense that there's not too many places left to go, but the places at least that those maps uh, show as relatively unscathed are the you know the far northwest, um, Washington, Seattle area, uh, and then you know the far uh, northern Midwest from the Dakotas over towards Minnesota and into Wisconsin, and then the Northeast. How many people would you you know are you modeling um, who would eventually move? What does that look like? So this is the million dollar question. Um, but to come up with our big number, we used an analysis uh, based off of a study that was published earlier this year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And what that study did is essentially defined a human niche, an ideal range of temperature and precipitation that uh, on the planet that human beings have lived in for the past 6,000 years. And it looks at how that niche is going to shift with a changing climate. And so what that means is that the people who will find themselves outside of that niche by 2070, which is what the researchers modeled, um, will have to either, you know, come to terms with living in, in uh, an environment that's historically outside the norms for human existence, or will have to move. Uh, it doesn't predict that they'll move, but they'll face that question. And if you take that data and you apply it to the United States, which I believe we were the first to do, you see a shifting niche zone uh, from really across the kind of middle part of the country now um, that moves towards the northern border of of Canada. Um, And it starts to push a lot of the southern part of the country uh, really outside of the ideal zone and some of it quite extremely outside of the ideal zone. And so to try to translate that to population affected is, you know, a really difficult and a really general task, but um, you know the general numbers that we come up with are about half of the U.S. population. We, mm. we said 162 million people, according to that data, would experience some kind of decline in their environment. Some of it will be drastic, some of it will be subtle, um, but but that's the rough estimate for how many people will not experience an improvement in their environment. Half of the American population—that's a massive, massive number. I mean, I know you're not saying that half will move, but half could be impacted by this. That would clearly, though, make it the largest migration, obviously, in American history, right? Yeah, I mean, 162 million people is an unlikely figure, you know, for how many people will will move. That would be an extraordinary extreme. But if you look at the other end of the spectrum, you know, what's what's a really low and conservative yeah. estimate for how many people might move? Uh, a lot of my reporting was based off of a study of sea level rise, um, particularly focused on the southeast coast. And that study found that 13 million Americans are likely to move as their properties become inundated. And sea level rise is an interesting metric because it's a lot less subjective, right? I mean, if it gets hot in Arizona, a lot of people choose to stay or turn on the air conditioning. But if your house is underwater, it's a lot more difficult to stay put. You can't drive to the grocery store. Um, Maybe your house is even on stilts, but you can't access other, you know, amenities and uh, you're increasingly at risk of, of storms and so forth. So if 13 million Americans moved, then that would be twice the size of the largest migration in in U.S. history, what we were talking about earlier, the the Great Migration. And if you imagine the kind of transformational social and cultural change that arose from the Great Migration, and you double that influence on uh, on the receiving parts of the United States in the future, um, you can see it's a little difficult to predict where, where we'll end up, but you can see that it'll be quite different from where we are today. You know, I think of this pandemic we're in right now, and I think of the incredible tension that more rural communities faced as urban folks moved into them, right? They moved up to their summer houses. They rented homes uh, out of cities. And I can't imagine Washington just saying, the gates are open, come on up. Um, have you thought about that a little bit? Yeah, so that's a real focus of, of my reporting is, um, you know, the, the expert, despite the kind of rural trend that we're seeing now with COVID, the long-term predictions that the experts I speak with, um, you know, portray is still one towards urbanization. So, you know, movement to to small, medium, and, and large cities is where, you know, many of, of these American migrants are likely to end up. Um, 
And the need for those cities to be prepared for that change is enormous in terms of, uh, you know, having economies that will be able to provide enough, you know, jobs and livelihood for the new populations that come there. And in terms of having adequate infrastructure, public transportation, so that, uh, you know, like Atlanta, it doesn't wind up in, in gridlock, um, uh, having adequate uh, water infrastructure and sewage infrastructure. Um, you know, an interesting case study here in California on a smaller scale is what happened after, um, you know, the, the tragic campfire in Paradise. And so many uh, Paradise residents, I think like 28,000 people almost overnight wound up, um, you know, in the adjacent, uh, you know, city of Chico. And um, uh, crime rose very quickly. Uh, traffic became almost unbearable and the, and the city's sewer uh, sewage treatment plant needed to be replaced about 15 years earlier than they'd anticipated, which led to this sort of ripple effect of new bond measures and questions about how to pay for that and and uh, new taxes and, and all those things. And that's just a, this great like case study for the kind of pressures and, you know, and, um, you know, stretch stresses that will, uh, you know, inevitably be placed on all sorts of receiving communities. Yeah, that's fascinating to think we have small examples of this already. And of course, when you link fires to climate change, there, there we have um, a story playing out, just as you mentioned. To go back out and look at a big picture here, we have conversations and ideas about potentially moving. But at the same time, there's this really interesting kind of weird conflicting data, which is that when you look at the fastest growing places in America, I think of cities like Houston, for example, they are very hot, they are going to get hotter. It sounds like right now people are still moving to places that are going to be battered by climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's... um. Uh, this is going to be a challenge going forward. I, you know, I don't know in my, you know, the experts that I asked about this don't know quite what to make of it, uh, except that, you know, there will be larger people in vulnerable places like, like right. Houston is an extraordinary example. Uh, and that eventually uh, a larger number of those people will, you know, have to uh, reconsider, you know, how, how and where they live. And you might end up with islands of, of wealth and infrastructure in places, you know, for example, you know, Houston, um, is so large and, and still growing and it may continue to thrive, uh, you know, with heavy investment and protections for a long time uh, into the future, the same way New York, you know, will likely build, a, you know, a seawall. Um, but you might see, you know, an evacuation from the more rural parts of Texas, you know, in a large swath around Houston, which are similarly threatened, but don't have that, that kind of, you know, government support uh, or tax base to, you know, to, to kind of, um, you know, face these sorts of changes. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you might see a city like Houston uh, or a city like Phoenix continue to exist in the places where they are for quite a long time, but they might become um, sort of lonely in their landscape. Well, are you ready to put a down payment in Buffalo, New York for your next house, Sabram? Uh, well, I grew up in Ithaca, New York, so <laughs> okay. uh, so I don't have to go as far as Buffalo, and, <laughs> and I do have some community to return to. But I think about it. I, you know, I, uh, it, I can't make a decision on that quite yet, but it's on my mind all the time. Of course. Well, Abram Lustgarden uh, reports for ProPublica and has written about this for the New York Times as well. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for your interest. We've now heard how hotter and hotter weather patterns are affecting not only how we live, but where we live. And as important as the data is about climate change, none of it really matters unless it's communicated in a way that's relatable. In fact, how we talk about climate change is perhaps one of the greatest challenges in this climate crisis. Mark Hertzgard has spent a lot of time thinking about just that issue, and he joins us now. He's the executive director of Covering Climate Now, a global journalism initiative committed to more and better coverage of climate change. Mark, thanks for joining us. I'm always happy to be on KCRW. You know, Mark, we think so much about the science of climate change, yet we often don't really think so much about the words we use to talk about it. Nor do we really think about the importance of storytelling. But I know this is something that's been really important to you for a number of years. Can you talk about why you think storytelling is really a crucial element here? Sure. I should say that this is a theme I've been struggling with for 30 years now. I've been on the climate beat reporting on uh, all aspects of the climate story, politics, economics, science, and above all, how ordinary people experience it all around the world. I've reported from 25 different countries and much of the United States. And uh, as a journalist, of course, one of our key roles is to try and communicate uh, the important issues of our time. And I think that uh, one of our shortcomings has been not enough attention to storytelling 
and the proper kinds of storytelling that will really resonate with our audiences uh, on this topic, which is odd when you think about it, because we're supposed to be professional storytellers. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's getting better, and I and a number of others have uh, founded an, an organization called Covering Climate Now, uh, which is a collaboration of more than 400 news outlets across the United States and around the world, uh, really committed simply to the idea of doing more and better climate coverage. Uh, and that inevitably involves um, trying to do a better job with storytelling. And I'm happy to say and grateful that KCRW is one of our uh, 400 news outlets in covering climate now. Why do stories matter? Personal stories matter in this conversation in terms of communication. Well, you know, if you talk to uh, writers, um, pretty much in any culture, they will tell you that stories are how we human beings make sense of our realities. Uh, if you uh, just stop and listen to uh, your friends or your coworkers or your loved ones or whoever, as they talk about their days, we're all telling stories of one kind or another. So um, if we can't figure out a way for those stories to touch one another's hearts as well as our minds, um, you know, we're not going to get very far. And I think that sadly that has been one of the, the, the real uh, challenges for my colleagues in the news media to uh, really fulfill our responsibilities on the climate uh, beat, which is to find a way to really tell stories that take this topic uh, of climate change, which can so often seem uh, complicated and uh, scientific and wonky. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of complexities to it if you want to drill down. But fundamentally, um, it's not that complicated. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the real um, challenges, as I keep saying, uh, going forward, is to find a way to, to get to the core of the story and to uh, do it in a way that, that reaches uh, the average person. Do you have any anecdotes or stories your, yourself that kind of illustrate this point of what we're talking about? Sure. I think one of the great uh, exemplars of climate change communication is a uh, scientist by the name of Catherine Hayhoe, very interesting person. She's at Texas Tech University in Texas, but she's from Canada, and she happens to be an evangelical Christian and married to an evangelical pastor. So she's quite an interesting person, and she happens to also be, I think, one of the two or three single best communicators uh, among all the scientists I've interviewed in my 30 years on the climate beat. And one of the things that makes Catherine such an effective communicator is that she's able to really understand where her audience is coming from and to speak to that. So she, for example, when she talks about uh, how does climate change work? Why does it, why are we, uh, why does uh, greenhouse gases, why do they heat up the earth? You know, she takes it to a very basic level. She says that this is like as we put these greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere by burning gasoline in our cars or coal in our power plants. And it goes up into the, into the atmosphere, but it gets stuck there uh, in the atmosphere. And the more we put up there, it's like adding more and more blankets around the planet Earth. So just like we as humans, if we put on another blanket and another blanket and another blanket, our temperature goes up. The same thing happens to the planet as we put more and more blankets of uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases up into the atmosphere. So that's, a, uh, I think, a pretty specific example of how she's able to break through um, the, the complexities of the climate problem and bring it down to a level that, frankly, you know, a six-year-old can understand. She doesn't get bogged down in parts per million of CO2 and, you know, 1.5 degrees of Celsius of temperature rise, all that stuff. Her point is to communicate rather than to pontificate. Are there ways that this can be effective when we are talking across the aisle? We know how politicized the climate change has become. How do we use stories to kind of reach our hand out there and say, we may not agree on a lot of things, but, but lend me your ear for a moment? Well, again, I think that's a, another place where Catherine Hayhoe is so impressive. Because she is an evangelical Christian herself, um, she's able to uh, go to those uh, people in her church and in her faith and in general, who are suspicious of the climate story and say, 
look, wait a minute, I'm a Christian too, but I'm also a scientist, and let's talk about, um, talk about this as fellow Christians. And one of the things that she does very effectively, I think, is to start on the things that we agree on. And for most human beings, we do agree on some pretty basic uh, things, that we want uh, a healthy environment around us, we want a healthy uh, environment for our children in particular, we believe in clean air and clean water and so forth and so on. And so Catherine starts with that, where we agree and what our values are, not what's up in our head about what such and such politician said or what such and such um, you know, TV station may have just blared into our ears, but rather what's in our hearts, what's in our values, what do we care about on this earth. And when you start with that, it can lead you to interesting places instead of starting with where you're conflicting and trying to argue with somebody and convince them that uh, they're wrong. You know, basic psychology will tell you that's probably not going to work. If you just start the conversation with, well, you're wrong about this, you really need to study up on that and and get educated, the average person is simply going to dig in their heels, get defensive, and and you're not going to get anywhere. And so I think that that's a very valuable lesson that we can learn from her and others. Well, there have been a lot of other interesting speakers. Um, I think if we return again to this, um, to religion, as you mentioned with Catherine Hayhoe there, um, you've been very impressed with remarks made by Pope Francis. Is that right? Pope Francis has been a real leader on climate and um he wrote a very, very important document, and you know, in the Catholic Church, the Pope issues these things called encyclicals, which are major statements of both theology, uh, but oftentimes with a, um, uh, a reflection on what that means out in the world today. And so, his encyclical of uh, is called Laudato Si, uh, which means basically uh, praise be to um, uh, creation, and. It was a very strong statement about not just climate change, but the uh, overall environmental degradation that modern uh, civilization has been inflicting upon nature for many years now. And that was a very important document, which the, the Pope recently just updated earlier this year, basically making the same point, but also saying that, you know, it's been six years and governments are still really lagging behind what science needs. And let's remember, there's a uh, last estimate I saw, there's about 1 billion practicing Catholics around the world. So when someone like the Pope issues that kind of an encyclical and um, talks about it from a values-based perspective, that this is not what we should be doing with the creation that, was, that we have been so lucky to be born into, that has a big impact. And I was also very happy to see at that time that the Pope was joined by other major uh, religious leaders, the head of the Greek Orthodox Church, one of the leading um, Jewish and uh, Islamic leaders whose names escape me at the moment. They all came out at the same time and basically said the same thing, which you know is not a surprise. Most of the great religions of the world uh, share this idea that uh, you know the earth is here, it's a gift to us, and it's our job to be good stewards. Right. And then subsequently, you have another view, which is that um, the world is also just here for us to uh, to enjoy, for, for us to, uh, to take advantage of, I guess. So, I mean, there are still these kind of conflicting versions of this, I guess. True. And it's the kind of thing, you know, <laughs> I grew up in the church and was, <laughs> my mother was our, our Sunday school teacher and used to give us every year, it was a you get a prize if you whoever could read through the all the books of the Bible. So I I've read through the Bible five times as a kid like that to get my little stars on the wall. So I'm very familiar with the Bible and I know that there are arguments that you can find a, you know a verse here or there that seem to indicate that uh yes, you know, humans can do whatever they want. But I I'm comfortable with the fact that uh, with the notion that uh, most of the Bible I think is pretty clear on what we're supposed to be, which is a a sense of humility and gratitude about this wonderful planet around us. It's really a miracle when you stop and look. Just the idea of photosynthesis is quite miraculous. Uh, We're so blessed to be here, to have this, and 
And it's really up to us to make sure that it continues. Again, for our children and our, our children's children, that's one of the things that is really, I think, not being sufficiently understood in today's conversations about climate in the public sphere, which is that we are talking about not just ourselves and not just our kids, but the future that children and generations still to come will inherit. We are basically stealing from them. So if we think about our children and our grandchildren, which again, I think every faith and every, every culture on earth values that, we have got to rethink what we're doing here immediately. This is a climate emergency, and that is not what uh, it's not an activist phrase. That is now what 13,000 of the world's scientists are saying. This is a climate emergency, and we need to start talking like that and, above all, acting like that. Are you seeing any other interesting conversations within the faith community in America? I think one of the most interesting conversations right now is with young people um, mm. and evangelical Christians uh, and young conservatives who are um, really in a split, frankly, with their uh, older uh, generations in the church and in the Republican Party. And it's, again, because these young people see that, that uh, you know, this is the future that you guys are loading up for us. They take the science seriously. There's a group that we're working with this week at Covering Climate Now called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And there's other groups, uh, Young Republicans for Climate Action and so forth. And they are, uh, I think, quite boldly and bravely standing up to their elders and saying, look, this is not good enough, this climate denial stuff and acting like this is all a hoax. Uh, you guys are condemning us and our hopes of ever having children to a hellish future, and we're not going to take it anymore. So, you know, it gets back to, to uh, another aspect of storytelling. So much of whether a story connects with an audience is not about the story itself. It's about who is telling that story. Who is telling that story? Are they a person? Are they a messenger that the audience can hear? And I think precisely because they can say to their elders, hey, I'm a Republican too, or I'm an evangelical too, um, you, you're able to open up a deeper level of communication and more honest communication, I think, because the person on the receiving end can't just you know, shuffle it off by saying, oh, that's another Al Gore liberal, right? Um, so again, that's, that's a big part of storytelling, is who is the messenger? Well, Mark Hertzgard, thank you so much for the time today. We appreciate it. I'm very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastion at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.